This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wait, Alex, how old is your little one? Uh, six months. Oh my God, so yeah, little. Tiny, so tiny. Little. Yeah. And it's like, it's such a dumb cliche, but like you already know it because you have an older one. Like it's so fleeting. And oh my God. Even yeah. the annoyances are sort of like sweet as you remember them later. And it's, it's true. Like, you're not going to remember like, a funny thing you saw on TikTok in the way that you're going to remember that, you know? I know, it's a I shame. Read, I read um, Steve Jobs' daughter's memoir, and now I can't remember what the hell it was called, but it was... Oh, right. Uh, remember? Right. And yeah. she said on his deathbed, he wasn't crying about Apple. He was crying about all the time he didn't spend with her. Yeah. Oh, um, and yeah. so I think about Brutal. that all the time. And it's like, he was, you know, who made more monumental changes in our world than than him and and he didn't it didn't matter at the end you know yeah yeah what a lovely note to start this podcast on you know <laughs> nothing matters but let's talk about it you know? nothing matters here we go <laughs> i'm alex higley and i'm Lindsay hunter and i'm, I'm a writer, writer but Welcome, everyone. With us today is Ruman Alam. He's the author of the novels Rich and Pretty, That Kind of Mother, and Leave the World Behind. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, Book Forum, and The New Republic, where he is a contributing editor. He studied writing at Oberlin College and lives in New York with his family. Thank you for joining us, Ruman. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Welcome. Thank you. We uh, are so excited to hear what you're going to read. So... You had prefaced the invitation to appear on your podcast by saying that you ask your guests to read for a handful of minutes at the mm -hmm. top of the episode. Mm -hmm. And I am working on a story and it's, it's sort of like, a, it's like when you are, pre you know, you're pregnant, but aren't quite ready to talk about it. And so mm -hmm. I was like, I, I can't read from this particular story, <laughs> but I have these two other stories that I'm also sort of working on simultaneously. And I realized that one of them I've been working on since 2016, oh, which wow. is so long ago. When I realized that I felt really like depressed and then proud of myself for my commitment to this particular <laughs> story. So I'm just going to read a very little bit, like the first two pages from this story. Um, the title the title of the story for a long time 
was Hungry Hippos, which is a like a, such a funny title that's actually, it's like too funny and <laughs> it's not really what I want it to be called. And so the title is kind of like one of those propositions I will deal with maybe in the next four years. <laughs> you got time, you got time. Who knows? So I, I'm going to start, <clears throat> I'm just going to read the beginning of the story. Everyone at Ocean Song is Eastern European. Their name tags declaim what have to be pseudonyms, Nancy, Barbara, Wanda, Tess, alongside cities of origin, Ljubljana, Riga, Budapest. Why Ocean's song? The ocean doesn't sing, and anyway, that's Cape Cod Bay, and it smells fetid, crustaceans decaying whenever the tide retreats. Why all these hale and hairless boys and girls have come here from there, for the summer is a mystery. Perhaps the wage is good. Perhaps the owner is Latvian. Like everyone, we've come to the shore to forget. Nothing so awful, the quotidian things. It's silly because the shore is nature and nature is a reminder of the universe's caprices and that's what those quotidian worries are, right? Our first day, we discover that the ocean beach is littered with rocks and foul-mouthed teenage boys doing handstands to impress foul-mouthed teenage girls. The water is astonishingly cold, and a couple smoking camels in the blanket next to us report that there are sharks. That afternoon, we try the bay beach and find the water oily and unpleasantly warm. But the children find a horseshoe crab in the knee-deep water and hoist the prehistoric survivor onto a neon blue foam board and wade far out desperate to save the animal as children are always desperate to live. We go home and shower and then it's late and we're woozy with sun and hunger. We walk into town and my brother-in-law Jeff calls out like a drill sergeant, but a nice one. Not far now, not far now. Kids can't walk that far so I take pity on my niece Harper, a chubby frowner with damp hair that's always stuck to her face. I lift her up and carry her the rest of the way on my shoulders, her soft thighs hot against my ears. We sit at a round table, eat fried fish, baked potatoes, and green beans dark with butter. There's a certain harmony, but maybe that's just math. Four adults, four kids. My boys look just like one another. Their cousins look just like one another. Rachel and Jeff look just like one another because they're twins. Sarah and I somehow look alike because we're both bored or annoyed in some eerie way that makes us look alike. We talk about the horseshoe crab. Can you eat a horseshoe crab, Tyler wants to know. I tell him that you can't, though I'm not sure whether this is true. There's nothing to it. It's just a shell that turns out to be empty. A shell game. He doesn't understand the joke. I'll stop there. I'm so uh, excited that you read something that includes food. <laughs> Absolutely. I write a lot about food. I, think. I know. And it is one of my favorite things. Uh, it's almost like your hallmark. I mean, it, it, it is so wonderful the way that you describe food and what people, you know, are eating and what they're doing to comfort themselves with food. Um, you know, what they're doing to sort of uh, just like get through it with food. Yeah. Um, where do you think that comes from? You know, my, so I grew up in a household that was not that interested in food. My mother is a physician and she, I'm one of four kids and she was always kind of like proudly rejected. I think the 
generational expectation that she would care about food and keeping house and things like that to become a physician. And so food was such an afterthought for her. But as you guys know, because you have kids, like (laughs) you have to feed them constantly. And I can only imagine how my mother felt with four kids that she had to feed constantly. And she would just, she would make the same food over and over and over again, which we all do. But like in my memory of it anyway, it was like, it's kind of crazy. Like she would just make spaghetti and then chicken legs. And like, that's all we ate as kids, really uh-huh. the same kind of two or three dishes in rotation constantly. And I think that had the effect of making me attuned to caring about food. And then, you know, part of it is just sort of being a cultural yuppie of a certain age where like <laughs> food is just important to you. And like just being the kind of, just, you know, being the kind of people that we are in the world that we live in now where food is sort of so connected to class and so connected to how you define your sense of self, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I wrote about food a lot in my new book and what I said when people asked about it is like, this, the food that you buy to consume at home, especially that food, it's like everything you buy is the story of yourself, but the food that you buy is the story that you're telling about yourself to yourself and to the people around you, like your most intimate self. And so it reveals everything. So you are the person who buys, you know, the grass fed beef and you are the person who buys the recycled paper coffee filters and you feel like that means something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, go ahead, Alex. Sorry. I was just going to say the grocery list and leave the world behind. It really did have that kind of performative aspect to it. But also, uh, it was really the moment where I, the book hooked me, where I was like, oh, I'm so with this character now. I'm so with Amanda. And it, it had that, that wonderful double quality, like you're saying, where it is the story that she's telling of herself and to the people who are also going to be seeing this food, her family. But it also has this kind of leveling quality for the reader to really draw them into her world. I'm, and thank you. I mean, I love hearing that. I think that I think as writers, you probably share this with me that you sort of turn everything into narrative. And so you, mm-hmm. you watch what people are buying in the grocery store and spin a story about what that person's life is like. Like the, why is that person buying five things of frozen green beans? Like there must be a reason. <laughs> and I want to know what that reason is, but I think, I hope you're right, Alex, that it sort of, it means something to other people, not just the anthropology of it, not just being able to fix. Okay. I understand like the, the food on the conveyor belt at the grocery store tells me not only whether you went to college, but tells me what sort of college you went to. But even beyond that anthropology, my hope is that it tells you something about that person. You know, I, I know that it does. I, my, my day job, Ramon, is I'm, I'm a manager at a grocery store. I know, store, so I this know. Is, I heard that on the first episode. This is, this is the kind of thing I'm, I'm, this is the kind of thing, whether I want to or not, that I'm thinking about constantly. <laughs> I think it's such a, a modern way of looking at it, too, because, you know, the way that you're framing it is I'm telling a story about who I am and, and me making these choices makes it real. Yeah, and it's I sort think, of similar yeah. to how we treat social media, right? Like when we're Instagramming something, yeah. it's yeah. it's if I say this, if I show you this, then that's what it is, and I can feel better. I can feel yeah. like I've done the work. Yeah, um, and it it really feels like, um, and and there's layers of this and leave the world behind. And I think in in anytime you're talking about food, where it's it's really something that that says something about who they are inside, or it's it's something about what they want you to know about them. 
Yes. Yeah. And we've yeah. become such a, like, you know, it's just become so easy to just believe what you're shown. And, and like you're saying, looking at someone buying this, the green beans and, and writing the, what their narrative is. And then you, you know, you go off on believe that and, and it's enough, right? Like it's, mm. it's just very, um, it's surfacy and it's shallow and it's enough, you know, like. <laughs> it's also just like, you know, it's part of, it's part of a larger broken system of capital. It's like social media is not really the evil in this, in this equation. It's mm-hmm. just sort of like, it's, it's just the mode through which it's communicated. But like, mm-hmm. we just exist in a system in which people's worth and identity and value and everything about them is defined through their relationship to capital to money Mm -hmm. to what they can buy to what they and to what those things that they buy tell you about them and I'm not sure it was always like that in this culture but it certainly feels like it is that way now Mm. yeah we're definitely barreling towards (laughs) like no no turning back if we haven't yeah yeah it kind of feels that way Mm. even in text threads it feels that way sorry uh, Alex go ahead no I the the title the hungry hippos title uh, <laughs> it made me think Ramon I was listening to a recent episode of working and you were talking about sometimes starting uh, a writing exercise or almost as a prompt for yourself with uh, titles of songs yes some, how yes. either either writing towards that title within the piece or using it as a starting point and I was wondering if hungry hippos was something that you started with or as kind of like a lark and then it became something that you were much more invested in or how did that come about? It's really funny that you would mention that particular detail because I think what happened is that it was a placeholder so that I would remember an anecdote about Mm. the game, Hungry Mm. Hungry Hippos. And I just recently, like two days ago, realized that the title for this particular story that I had been working towards maybe the last four years without realizing it is in fact a song title and oh. it's a it's a song called i only have eyes for you it's like an old 1950s it's a really amazing song by the flamingos mm-hmm. um the flamingos okay it sorry. has this really like echoey like kind of menacing wall of sound sounding produ- cool. production and um yeah so the song title is an exercise that i i love and it really forces me to produce because my relationship to those songs is always about emotion. Mm-hmm. It's it's so so Hungry Hippos, the, the stand-in title is just holding something about an anecdote I wanted to remind myself of, but the story, the, whatever I call the story, I want it to be bigger than mm. that, I think. And so music is just, it's just, a, it's just a cheat for getting myself to write. It's really, that's fundamentally why I would even mention it and I do this all the time in many of my stories that I've published. I haven't published that many stories, but many of the stories that I have published started exactly that way as an exercise related to a song. Love that. Yeah. Is that, you know, does that relate to like sort of the schedule that you have for yeah. writing? You know, like, do yeah. you have like, you yeah. have a set amount of time and you better get writing. Well, right? as, I men- as I mentioned, I started this story in 2016. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I have two kids. I have mm-hmm. other things I have to do. I get distracted. But having um, marching orders mm-hmm. makes it much easier. And so one of the things that is a challenge for me, and I'm sure it's a challenge for both of you, is that like 
facing the page, I'm making air quotes because like I'm actually just facing the screen, but like facing the page is sort of this like, it, it's sort of terrifyingly vast, but reducing the enterprise to an exercise with some constraint around it, whether that's write 550 words, which is something I do a lot too, like I set like a word count, um, mm. or write for 20 minutes exactly or whatever, is a way that I can defeat both like the terror of that endless page. And also I can accommodate that to a schedule that demands I be with my kids from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. and, you know, or whatever, whatever I'm dealing with on a given day. So I find it very adaptable in that way. What is your sort of writing schedule? What is your, what does your day look like? <laughs> At the moment, I think like so many people in the last year, whatever schedule I had has really collapsed because of the lack of a schedule for my children. So the lack of schooling, the lack of, you know, everything that we were without for so long has really challenged my ability to construct a schedule for myself. And I don't love to try and force myself to work, you know? Um, it's like when you get like a dud lemon and you're trying mm. to get juice out of it and there's just <laughs> nothing, it's all like rind and, you know, it's there's no point, there's no point. And so I don't do it that way because it would drive me crazy. Um, but I do try to write as much as I can when I can. And I try not to let myself talk myself out of it. So if on a given day I have 90 minutes, I tell myself, well, that 90 minutes is what you have. So it will be sufficient. Mm -hmm. Or if it has to wait until after the kids go to bed, you know, my kids go to bed at eight o'clock. It's not really so late. So I will, what I'll do on a day that I want to work after the kids go to bed is I'll shower and prepare myself for bed at like 4.30 so that the second the kids are asleep, my, the second part of my life can Mm -hmm. turn on you know mm -hmm. and I can work I can stay up until like one o'clock in the morning without mm -hmm. wanting to die you know <laughs> like getting getting like five and a half hours of sleep is like enough I can't do that five days in a row but I could do it like one or two days a week mm -hmm. and so I try to simply remind myself that like it's a luxury to work in this fashion I can't allow my my I can't allow the lack of like unfettered hours to be an excuse not to do work that doesn't require unfettered hours mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it doesn't like a lot of a lot of writers who are better than all three of us have done work under much more significant constraints oh yeah you know and I think I'm sorry who's really... <laughs> better than me <laughs> that's why I love Lindsay I knew she was gonna say that I was waiting for it and I just I love it I heard like tire screeching and then <laughs> no but you're absolutely right and I um I often uh, flog myself with that exact thought of like oh my God, you're complaining because you have, you know, 45 minutes of quiet where you get to right. work toward your dream. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And it's Vermont. also like, it's not in those moments, I find it's not work. It's like, it is work, of course, don't get me wrong. And I don't have some kind of like dumb spiritual relationship to it. <laughs> but like, I do feel better. It's like, it's a bit like going to the gym or something that you like hate doing and then you do it and you feel great. It's mm -hmm. like those 45 minutes can really salvage mm -hmm. a day that was otherwise filled with like 
fighting with your kid and like mm-hmm. trying to do homeschool and freezing to death because it's New York City and it's the dead of winter and you there's nowhere to go. And like all of that frustration can fall away mm-hmm. if I put that time in. And that time is also productive and like can move me forward as an artist or whatever it is I'm trying to accomplish. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I teach occasionally and I'm sure you guys have heard this from younger writers or other writers, this idea that like, oh, I need this time. I need this perfect system. I need this perfect scenario in which I have the table and Mm -hmm. a cup of tea and the right kind of pencil and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff. And I just, I don't, I don't, cotton to that (laughs) I don't I don't love that point of view because it just seems silly to me it seems like a way of pathologizing what it is you really do well I think people like hear those romantic stories about like um and again romantic with air quotes as you were using (laughs) um you know like Hemingway would sharpen six pencils and he would write from six until 12 and then he would drink for 12 hours and then you know and it's just like well my life doesn't look like that oh my god I'm not a real writer like he was or whoever you know you see that famous picture of Margaret Atwood sitting in a white room writing The Handmaid's Tale and it's like oh my god I'm sitting in my basement and I have (laughs) like a macaroni noodle stuck in my hair and like who's gonna read this you know yeah with but the amount of going. reading you have to get done, Ramon, is it is it oh. choosing between reading and writing on a daily basis, or how do you kind of block that out? That's another very good question. Um, I am really overwhelmed with reading at the partic- at this moment in time, and one of the real challenges for me over the period of um, coronavirus—I don't even know what to call it anymore—but the period of the last year, <clears throat> one of the challenges has been that I'm not taking the subway anymore mm-hmm. right I used to take the subway to take the boys to school and I would read both way you know not on the way there with them but on the way back and so that was like 22 minutes of reading that I don't have anymore and I can't we're not no one's leaving the house so I can't or I often can't I feel guilty doing it just go upstairs and read a book but for example I have to write I'm writing the introduction to um Gene Stafford's first novel, Boston oh, wow. Adventure, is being reissued. And so I, and I, it's been a couple of years since I read it. So I was like, oh, I should, I need to reread it to inform what I'm going to say. But it's 537 pages long. <laughs> oh and, you know, I'm an old man and I'm tired. And like, <laughs> so most of my reading I save uh, for bedtime. And then I get into bed and I'm so tired and I'm trying to read and I'm trying to pay attention. Like, I'm not just reading for pure pleasure, I I kind of have to focus and remember what it is I'm looking at. So that has been a challenge, but I do think, and one thing I say a lot, again, when I teach is that reading is so intimately related to writing Mm -hmm. that in some ways, the exercise of one is the exercise of the other. And if you can't, if you truly cannot do anything, you can't make it to your desk because the baby is sick and you you know, your wife has to run an errand and you're just on, deck you're just there all day if you can get into bed and read for 20 minutes like you're still kind of touching that same part of your brain mm-hmm. that's what I tell myself anyway I think that's absolutely true when I went to grad school that was the main thing that my advisors did for me was read what I was working on and say okay now you should read this book yes. you should read this poet yeah, you right. should have you read yeah. this and and I didn't I just thought it was like you know a nice thing that they were doing and over time I realized oh this is, I'm being taught how to write by, by reading these things. Yeah. I, I still love that. Like I, I had this, I'm trying to work on a, a new novel and I have a kind of, I had like a general idea about 
its relationship to time and structure. And so I said to my agent, I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking about this. And she said, oh, you should read this and you should read this and you should read wow. this and you should read this. Like just, right, you know, in one, like in one text chain. And it was so perfect. Cause I was like, yeah, this is what I need. Like what you're saying, Lindsay, that having somebody who, who knows a book, like press it onto you and say like, look at the way this book deals with the passage of time or look at the way that with this book deals with like generations or, you know, whatever it is, it can feel so satisfying mm-hmm. to learn from someone better than you, you know? Mm-hmm. I was really curious, Ruman, uh, about the way uh, point of view is, is working and, and leave the world behind. And I was curious how long it took you to arrive <laughs> at that that third person that is, you know, mostly focalized through these characters, but then will pull back and give you kind of an other consciousness related to the character and then pull back even further and give you so much of the world at large, you know, outside these characters. And that was honestly the thing that I loved the most as a reader with this book was just the flexibility of that third person. And I, I want to know how, how you arrived and, you know, were able to, to modulate it that way. What, did it did you open with that in mind or how did oh, you get no, there? No, no, this is such a good question. And the answer, really, the answer in short is like it really helps to have a good editor. Mm-hmm. So the book as it was initially conceived, the book shows you six people who don't know what's happening to them. Mm. And the reader inhabits the exact same place as those six people, because the reader has no idea what's happening either, because the book has yes. no mechanism for telling the reader. Mm-hmm. Because if the book is telling the reader, then it has to, of necessity, tell the characters. So how do you like split that difference? And my editor said to me, this is annoying. The reader is going to want to know. And it was just that simple. And I was like, you're right. The reader is going to want to know. And none of these six characters, according to the third person perspective in which the book has been written, have the ability to know. So what can I do? And it was like, oh, well, the book should simply speak directly to the reader. And it's a very old fashioned technique. It's like a, it's almost like a Victorian technique, right? Mm -hmm. Where the novel understands something about the universe, even if the players inside of it don't. And so that simple realization of my editor telling me the book was annoying was really clarifying. (laughs) And I was like, well, I can't rewrite the book and I can't, I can't suddenly introduce like some other device, like, oh, they, they find a newspaper or they're like, you know, it's, it was a real challenge. I was really painted into a corner there with these six perspectives, but introducing what is what fundamentally amounts to a seventh perspective, which I think of as God, um, mm. was really, really helpful. And it's something that I think more contemporary fiction ought to do. I think that we, the dominant mode for the work that I've read over the past few years that's been contemporary, which isn't a ton, I don't read a ton of contemporary work, but seems to be this third person that's so close that it's essentially a first person. Right. Right. So it's a third person that inhabits like sensual feeling and psychology simultaneously, but it's told from like with this authorial remove, but actually stepping back further and looming over the construction where the author is sort of like God is kind of liberating. And, um, I worry that that's might be how I write now. Like, it's a really weird feeling, but it's like, I like writing this way because 
it's very freeing because I always understand what's happening and I always have a mechanism through which I can say it. And I'm not painted into the corner of a, one of this, the psychology of one of the players on the page. Or yeah, where it feels like you're always playing this weird game with the reader, like, ha, 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 like, you know, yeah. I'm not going to let you know, you know, <laughs> it, it, you can really feel like you're being fucked with, you know, um, whereas with this voice that you've discovered, this God voice makes it makes the book really feel like you feel the authority of that voice, but you also feel the authority of the writer, you know, and so you just like inherently trust where you're going, even as you're scared shitless. And I have to say, one of the places that this arose from is from reading to my children. Mm. Wow. It has this, what happens, I think, in this book, or I hope what the reader experiences is that it's this feeling of being told a story and then suddenly the story begins to change, but the story itself is in command. And so you simply follow along with it and... Yeah, I don't know. I really do feel like this came from reading to my kids and reading the way that like, especially the way that like fairy tale and myth for children are written um, where there's like, there's a, there's a sense of order and there's a sense of like, here's how the universe works and the story will obey those rules, but it can also break them or violate them. And it's so different from using an individual invented psychology and having them brush up against something, brush up against like a repeated motif so that you, it's like, it, it's a different kind of mystery story. It's like the reader isn't trying to assemble clues. You can actually just tell them what is happening. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a weird, I don't know. It's like, I feel like, I feel inarticulate describing how it unfolded for me. But once I realized it, I had so much fun discharging it. Like that was Absolutely. my favorite part of writing this book was when um, my favorite scene in the book and my, I think one of the most pleasurable parts to write <clears throat> happens when the book first really explains something. And it, in, it, the, it intimates that the trees are able to talk to one another. The trees mm-hmm. have an intelligence or that mm-hmm. like all these things are happening across the world, but the people who we're looking at have no idea. They're these two little kids walking through the woods in their bathing suits. And it was so fun to like introduce people with names and kill them off in some horrible way. And it was so <laughs> satisfying to say like, to basically enumerate everything I'm afraid of, mm-hmm. Di- dying in a subway train, being trapped in an elevator, mm-hmm. a woman murdering her children in the bathtub and just sort yes. of dropping them into the book and naming them. Was it hard to, that was, I, I was wondering, especially with the, that, that, that section and then there's maybe one or two other similar sections was it hard to know where to stop? Because those seem so fun. Like they would be so fun to come up with and even just locate. I remember the first mention of Queens as the, as a, one of the, you know, one of the places where something is happening was so exciting. Cause you're like, Oh my God, what's going to like, right. Another where's place. it going to be next? Yeah. yeah just yeah. to get, just to get a place name was exciting. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't hard because the, the shape of the book was already so defined and the, and the momentum of the book relies on a kind of brevity. And so if I, had, if I had allowed myself to indulge myself, I would have broken the momentum of the larger machine. And sure. so, I mean, I wrote, when I wrote this book and when I was revising it, I had the pages organized um, 
I guess by chapter, I, chapter feels like such an artificial word, but sort of by section, by chapter, fine, by chunk. And so it was like, you know, 22 piles of paper and it allowed me to see when something was going on for too long, just like when it was more pages. Mm -hmm. And then to look at those pages and say like, what can I, what can I tighten here? Because I'm, the momentum will break. And in some ways, I feel like people don't love to hear this, but in some ways I do think that writing has this mathematical quality exactly the same way that music does. And it's like, whether you're listening to Bach or you're listening to jazz, it's like at some point, like that little tangent has to stop and you have to get back to the main phrase or the main idea. Otherwise my attention will have wandered and I will understand the story to be something different. And I didn't want that to happen. And I think also like, you know, like you were talking about uh, Alex, like limiting these things because we're never told exactly what happened, right? Like we're, we're given glimpse of, of like what is happening as a result of what happened, but we're never, we're never, the God voice never says, this is what happened. You know, this, a nuclear missile or, you know, some sort of something from space, you know, like we're never given that. So there is that limit there. And overall, it just, it adds to this general feeling of like, you know, you were saying all the, all your worst fears, you know, dying on the subway, drowning the children. But one of the main fears I think is for a human to understand how insignificant they are. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, throughout, they keep trying to assert their significance and failing, yeah. you know, and, yeah. Um, yeah. and, and it, you know, when they come to, um, oh God, I forgot his name now. What's the, the construction worker's name that they go to his house. Danny. Danny. Thank Danny. you, Danny. Yeah. Yeah. And he, and they try to, you know, have this connection and there's nothing, you know, Ugh. it's just all, um, I don't know. I just think like that was so brilliant too, is, is giving us a glimpse, but not giving us everything. Well, I mean, it's polarizing. I think there are readers who really feel frustrated by the book's reluctance or inability to answer what's actually happening. But, and again, I think readers don't love hearing people say this all the time, but the truth is that I don't know what happened mm. because it's not what the book is about. It's right. really what the book appears to be about. It's right. like, you know, the book isn't about the rock rolling down the hill towards the people. It's about what the people do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's much harder to deal with. And it's an uncomfortable book. And I mean, I may, I have made the mistake of like looking at reader response to this oh book boy. really closely, which is like never advisable because it's not, that's not, it's not usually useful information, but I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, it's really, this book is so stressful. I don't like it. Or Mm. these people are so unlikable. I don't like that. Or um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pushback about the language. Oh, this book, the book is too, um, it's the language is complex or there's a lot of suspicion, I think, among contemporary readers about complex language. There's, there's so I've seen people say like the the language is complex and it made me feel uncomfortable, but that's the strategy, right? (laughs) Like the reason that the language sounds the way, the reason the book sounds the way that it does at the beginning is because I want you to feel uncomfortable and I felt uncomfortable writing it. And I felt like that's how the book operates. And so it's funny to see people sort of diagnose exactly how the book is functioning, but then reject that. (laughs) 
Um, are you seeing like, these reviews on, are you reading these on like Goodreads? Yeah, on Goodreads and yeah. on Amazon. And like, yeah. you know, I'm tagged in like a bunch of tweets and a bunch of Instagram things oh about the book. Oh, I and, forgot people do that. You know, and it's like, it's it's fine. It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't make me feel sad. It's, but it's, it's interesting to understand like the psychology of contemporary readers, especially with respect to unlikability, which I just, something I have very little patience for as it's not a substantive critique. It's not it's an interesting not, thing no. to say, it's not you know, all. and likable people are not interesting. Also, I wouldn't <laughs> want to write a book about somebody likable because it just be to me that seems really boring. And I don't, mm. I also don't know anyone who's likable, <laughs> you know, I, I, I really don't. I can't think of anyone who is just like, I mean, you guys have, ki- I mean, Alex, your yeah. old, your oldest is still pretty little. So you probably right. haven't yet had the experience of like, cause I feel like, when they're little, like all the kids are sort of darling and sweet and they're mm. sort of animal and you love them. But right. when they're like four, you're like, oh, I don't like, I don't like that Jasper kid. That right. Jasper kid is bad news. <laughs> he's always grabbing the drum from my kid. He's a, he's a jerk, he's entitled. And so like that kind of thing comes very early. And, mm-hmm. um, but it's also like part of the texture of what makes you human as opposed to just sort of like, a construction on a page yeah i feel like it's very human to other other humans right like yeah. we're always yeah. othering them in every possible <laughs> way right and and right. leaving ourselves as sort of the you know the the example that everyone should follow yes um yeah. but i think if you can go back to those goodreads reviews and reply in the god voice <laughs> oh there you go <laughs> you could really solve a lot of problems on goodreads <sighs> in a very oh short period of time <laughs> it is a t- it is a tough it is a tough part of the bargain of doing the work that we do mm. which is that you have only the work to make the argument right like mm-hmm. you have that's the tool that you have to do what you have to do and when you haven't done it on some level, maybe you have failed. And so you do have to look at, you don't have to, but I think it can be useful to look at responses from readers and say like, oh, did you not understand or did I not complete the transaction? Did do I- Do you think you that, know, was, that was your impulse when you were, cause you said this, this book more than the other books, you, you wanted to know what people were saying. Do you think that was your, 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 your question to yourself? Probably. Yeah, probably. Mm. Also, I want to get better. And I do Mm. think it's useful to look at, you know, I mean, I work as a critic. I've spent like, like everyone, I spend a fair amount of time like looking at tweets or Goodreads or whatever about not just my own book, but other people's books. And I think it's useful to understand like what the prevailing taste in reading is and how you square that with what it is you want to do as an artist. Not that you hone what it is you want to do to meet some imaginary readership. Like it's impossible to really reduce the readership anyway, according to these (laughs) arbitrary, you know, single opinions. But I do think it's useful to want to, like, I want to get better. And, Mm -hmm. you know, your, your editor wants you to get better. Your agent wants you to get better, but your editor and your agent are like your parents and they're going to tell you that you're (laughs) handsome. You know what I mean? Like, they're not going to say like, you suck at writing plot. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, you're really bad about writing this, doing this kind of thing. That's not, that's not my relationship to those people. I mean, mm-hmm. and so sometimes it, I think it can be good to confront what readers really think, especially if they are not trying to be nice to you and they're not trying to say, like, flatter you. Right. But, they're really res- but if they're responding in good faith or responding like in a way that's more 
complicated and, and interesting than I don't like this book, you know? I would say I wrote Eat Only When You're Hungry as a direct response to my Goodreads reviews of Ugly Girls. <laughs> so, so Eat Only yeah, When so, You Know. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, I do. I think, I, I think it can be useful. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I read the reviews and I, and, and the things that stung were like, oh, then there's probably some truth there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they just said the same shit about Eat Only When You're Hungry. So I don't. <laughs> well, they were <laughs> I <absolutely> tried. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I think you have to do it like within reason. Oh well, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and it's, but... it's exactly that impulse of like <laughs> I want to get better, and I want, I want to, I want to know why what I was trying to communicate doesn't come across, yeah. right? Like, and I yeah. want to work right. on that. Yeah. Ramon, did you have any novels that were touchstones for you as you were working on Leave the World Behind, or, or something that you had almost as like a an ideal, uh, something you were reaching towards, just even if it dropped away as you began drafting, but did you have any narratives in mind? Uh, I think that like the atmosphere of the book is so specific that a lot of the touchstones were other kinds of artistic products. Like Mm -hmm. I was thinking a lot about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, Oh, wow which is a play that I love. I was especially thinking about the Mike Nichols, Mike Nichols film mm-hmm. uh, adaptation. Um, the way in which it sort of like turns from feeling really convivial to feeling really menacing. Right. And um, there's the experience of watching that play is just so grueling and so weird. And, and in some ways the relationship between reader and text in this book is not unlike watching a play where you know what's happening, even though the people on stage don't entirely know. Mm. I was also thinking about the Michael Haneke movie, Funny Games. Oh my God. You know, um, which is like, yes, exactly. Oh my God. Like there's no other way to really describe the experience of watching that film other than to use that phrase. Like it's an, it's a grueling, it is funny. It's like very comic, but also just so horrifying what's happening and so random, doesn't make any sense. I didn't want something that was like, I mean, that book, that film, excuse me, feels like a provocation. Definitely. And um, I didn't want to simply do that. But um, I also was thinking a lot about Delolo, which I think is probably like really evident to most people that the chill of his language, the, there's like the wry perspective on contemporary life and the sense that there is, However absurd, whatever is happening on the pages, it's just a stand-in for the far more absurd reality that the reader inhabits. Mm. And I really love that tension. So I read, right before I started writing this book, I read Players and I read Great Jones Street and I read, I read another DeLillo book. I can't even remember what it was now. It might've been The Names. And it was really just like the sound of those books is so specific and impossible to replicate. Like, I just, I don't think anyone can write that way except for him. Um, But it was sort of useful to hear all of that in my head as I started this project. And I think, I mean, I'm sure you have the same experience, like whatever you think you begin with, like then the thing takes on a life of its own and becomes some other animal altogether. And so it's really hard to, but a lot of what I was reading in the period right before I wrote this book feels really unrelated to me to mm. how the book fundamentally is shaped. Like I was reading a lot of Patrick Modiano, mm. 
I don't see any of that in the book right. at all. Um, so I don't know if that was just for pleasure. I, I, I'm not sure what happened to that. Influence is such a weird thing to isolate, I think. You know? Right. It's so fun to hear sometimes because it can be so surprising. I mean, yeah. even though I probably should have thought of DeLillo, I didn't. And then when you said it, it made, it was like, oh, that does make sense. I right. understand exactly what Ramon's saying, but I never would have offered that up to you as a, oh, you were reading a bunch of DeLillo, weren't you? You know, it's, it's funny how, how personal it can feel and honestly how hidden a lot of that can feel. Yes, totally, totally. And sort of meaningless in, right. in one way, but really meaningful in another way. Mm-hmm. I've never read any Don DeLillo guys. Really? Can we say friends? I think he's like a very, I think that he is not a well, I think it's not well understood. I'm not even sure I really understood what it is is, that is interesting about him. And I think that I, for a long time, thought of him as like a writer that like boys I thought were hot in college really liked. (laughs) That's exactly, exactly how I I think of him. (laughs) But he is a very... What I, what, I, what I took away from the experience of reading Great Jones Street and Players in particular, and whatever that third book I read, that the name of which completely escapes me now, was how funny they are. Oh like, that, like they're really, really funny. And he's really, like, you have to be, I mean, you have to be a certain kind of person to be funny you have to be like, you have to have a soul and you have to have a lot of intelligence. Like those two things have to be working. Otherwise there's no sense of humor. Like a sense of humor is beyond you. And that there's so much humor in the work and it's not mean humor. It's not directed at the reader. It's always directed at like reality itself. Mm -hmm. Really says something about who he is, I think artistically. And just like on the level of the line, if nothing else, Nobody writes like that. I mean, he just no. is an incredible, incredible writer. I saw him read at the Goodman for a Nelson Algren celebration. It was Barry Gifford and Don DeLillo. And DeLillo walked out and he's so, you know, unassuming. And he has a little bit of a lisp. And when he's, as soon as he started reading, it was just, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, yeah, he's, uh, I, Libra is my favorite, but I actually haven't even read Great John Street. But yeah, I love I love him. I don't know. There's a lot. Which one is Libra? Libra is the Lee Harvey Oswald. The Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. one. Yeah. That is an amazing book. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I bet you would dig that one, Lindsay. I was just going to say, that sounds, that sounds interesting. I think he's one of those, you know, he's been co-opted by a certain kind of literary dude unfairly. Mm-hmm. Like his work is really. Much stranger. It's much weirder. It's yeah. much harder to hold on to. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny. So I, a, a few years ago, I was in a used bookstore and I saw a copy of Opioneers. Mm-hmm. And it was oh in God, this like hideous, like Dell paper, 95 cent paperback edition that like you, it just looked like a package of vitamins, <laughs> you know? And I was like, why did they make books look so fucking boring? I've never <laughs> read Willa Cather. Maybe I should read Willa Cather. And I bought that book and my head fell off of my shoulders. They could not believe how good it was. Yeah. And I was like, Willa Cather has really suffered because <laughs> pa- like, 
lazy paperback designers have put like covered wagons on the covers of her books. Yeah, they're like and beige she, and cream colored. Yeah, and, yes, yeah. and they have like floor, like a, a woman looking wistfully across the prairie. Yeah. Those books are electric and so contemporary and so poorly served by what they seem to be. In exactly the same way that I think Delillo is, where it's like, it sounds like the kind of book like a really annoying kind of boy would love. <laughs> and it probably is the kind of book that a really oh, annoying kind of boy would love. Yes. You know, I mean, they're, they're about baseball and rock musicians <laughs> and all of that stuff, but, but that doesn't, it's not his fault. And there's so much more to them than that. So I, I can understand your reservation. I can understand, Lindsay, how you got to this point in your life, but I think mm-hmm. that Thank you should you. give it a shot. You know, I will, because I, you know, right now I'm in between books and I, I, I just finished a book today and I think I have, I don't know if this is the right one to start with though. I have white noise somewhere around here. Oh, it's a great, that's a great it is? one. Okay. Yeah. Very, super funny. Yeah. Uh, one of the very funny good. and very, um, it's actually very like, that's probably the best one to start with because it's very easy to read. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, right. like it's almost like enjoyable in a way that not all of his books can be you know that's the one i always hear you know like like that certain type of boy used to be like dfw dfw yeah and now that certain yeah. type of boy is like white noise yeah absolutely absolutely not that i talk to anyone but my children yeah <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us <laughs> um well ramon last question you said you've been working on some stories yeah are you writing a collection what is happening uh, no i it's no, I'm not. Um, okay. Nothing. So <laughs> I, I love my agent. Like I, I'm preface this by saying how much I love my agent and how smart I think she is. But like, I'll tell her I'm working on a story and she's like, that's nice. It's just like when my kids are like, dad, do you want to look at my like Lego thing? And I'm like, that's nice. <laughs> she's really, I think because she's a good agent and she's like, you know, the story is like, it's, it's a, it's a niche concern. It's not, it's not necessarily what she's. I'm, I'm laughing so hard you know. because I sent, I sent my agent a novel and a collection of stories. And um, this was a while ago, like a year ago. And he was like, he called me back to talk to me about them. And we talked about the novel for a long time. And then he was like, and you know, we'll talk about the collection later. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, it's why like, did you send this shit? That's nice. Good job, honey. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I go through periods where I really don't, care about stories about as a reader mm-hmm. even which mm-hmm. is like a terrible thing to admit but like I have a real bias towards the novel as a form as mm-hmm. a reader like I'm really interested in novels um even short ones so I don't know what I don't know why I have this bias I did read a lot of stories this year because I reviewed Laurie Moore's collected stories so I read her entire body of work wow. um or I, I'm saying this year, but it was last year or earlier last year. So I felt really like in this, like thinking a lot about that form. And then I taught a short story class at Columbia last fall. And so I read, um, I taught Lydia Davis and Curtis Sittenfeld and Brian Washington, mm. all living writers, some really interesting writers, Carmen Maria Machado. Mm-hmm. And to my own surprise, I like taught myself an interest or like to, re- to renew a kind of care for the story as wow. a, as a form. And there's a real, I, you know, the truth is that I think stories are harder to write than novels in a weird way. Wow. Um, Cause the novel is hard to write because it is 
um, a commitment. Mm. But the story is hard to write because it is like a weird, amorphous little animal. Like it's really hard to, I don't know. It's like, it's very hard for me to crack. And so the story that I, the little bit that I read from this story that I've been working on since 2016 and another of the stories that I've been working on lately is also from 2016. Um, and it is also named after a song actually. It is called December Will Be Magic Again, which is mm -hmm. a Kate, uh, excellent song by Kate Bush. And the story that I'm writing now, which is new, um, I think the impulse to work on them is probably related to the class I was teaching mm -hmm. and also probably related to um, Leave the World Behind is the only time I've ever written anything that any audience really cared about. And so I spent a lot of time talking about it for the last couple of months mm -hmm. and I'm really tired of it. <laughs> I'm really, <laughs> I, I need like a trial separation from <laughs> the book, but also maybe from like the form mm -hmm. of a book itself. And so the idea of trying to like, trying to catch the lightning in a bottle that is what a story feels like to me feels enjoyable in a way that like the marathon of a novel just doesn't feel right now you know my first Ruman experience was reading a story of yours in I think Wigleaf oh really Am I remembering Which, that correctly yeah I love Wigleaf so I do too much. I, that's so what story do you know do you remember oh my God, I have to find it I just remember I maybe Emma posted Emma Straub posted about it or someone posted this this Wigleaf story by Ruman Alanis Alam is so great and I immediately because I love Wigleaf if, if it's on Wigleaf you know it's going to be amazing and I immediately clicked it and I mm -hmm. read it and I I think I even reached out to you and was like this is amazing and you know like oh that's so kind I, it was a long time ago I don't I'm going to try to find it right now. Um, Weekly, I love, I love that. I guess magazine is the word. I don't know. Like, I just think they have a very singular sensibility and like the kind the form that they publish is very specific mm -hmm. and is really extraordinary when it's done well. And um, Dan Sean, who was my teacher as an undergraduate, published a story oh, at Weekleaf. I love him that so much. I love so much. I, he's a genius mm -hmm. and like one of the kindest human beings I know. And, but the story that he published in Wiggly, I, I really do think about all the time. Like, wow. It's, it's called, that's him. That's the guy. And it's, it's told with such economy oh, because that's like, yes, that's I know. the form yep. of, you know, do you know the story? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story. And it just, it shows that like that economy, you can tell a story that is so massive even using like 950 words or however long that story actually is. And it, it has the emotional impact of something much bigger. I, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it's, it feels like a bomb, but it's shaped like a dart. Like it's a really extraordinary story, you know? He, his stories are incredible and he he has little tricks too like I, I think I've said this before on the pod but he keeps a drawer full of titles and he'll just pick a title mm. out and write that story to match oh my god does he do that really yeah that's, yeah that's yeah. amazing I got to talk to him I got to interview him at an event here in Chicago and he was talking about all the little tricks he has to get himself to write and sometimes he just writes for 20 minutes like when he was writing ill will he just wrote 
a single page. And when he was got, when he got to the bottom of that page, he was done with that chapter. And then he would start the next chapter. And it didn't matter if he was in the middle of a sentence. Wow. And when you look at the book now that changed, I'm sure it changed in my vision, but that's how it started. Um, and yeah, he's anyway, we were talking about how brilliant you are in Wigleaf, but yes, Dan Sean is uh, it's an extraordinary writer. Big I mean, episode it's... for Nebraska writers. We got Will Cather, Dan yeah, Sean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got to throw a couple in there. We, should, uh, we could talk right Morris here. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for yeah, coming. Thank on. you so much. Oh, Ron. of course. It was such a great pleasure. It's really, yeah. really fun. And, you know, I mean, I love talking to my colleagues. One of the things that's been so hard about this time, I'm sure you guys feel it too. Mm -hmm. It's not just not talking to anyone, which that's got its own frustrations, but I can't have conversations like this in my household Mm -hmm. and they don't benefit me. Like, but talking to my colleagues like does get me excited about the work that I do. And it does make it easier to do those 20 minutes or whatever I've set aside on a given day to deal yeah. with. And even just reading yes. aloud the beginning of the story that I've been fucking trying to finish <laughs> since 2016, I was like, oh, this isn't terrible. Like I should finish the story. I should really like try and like fi- get this across the finish line. And it's the kind of thing that like conversation with your peers reminds you of. And so I'm grateful to you for reminding me of that. Oh, I was really sad when you stopped reading. So oh. please, please <laughs> yeah, finish it. All right. Well, maybe Give four it to years Wigleaf. from now, I'll have a draft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're going to have like a two presidential term yeah, <laughs> situation exactly. with this exactly. story. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, so thank you again to our guest, Ruman Alam. Um, if you, if people want to find you, I mean, they, they all know who you are, but is there anywhere in particular where you want them to go? I mean, yeah, I tweet all the time. I Instagram all the time, you know, Lindsay, you know. Oh, I know. And you I, know, you know every I time, <laughs> like you posted something recently where it was like, oh, tuna melts. Cause I've given up. Yeah. And love tuna people just, if you haven't read Ramon on food, it's follow him everywhere. I do, I do think about food a lot and I it do is, Instagram about food a lot, you know. It is so, yeah. I love it. Please never stop. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. I'm not being. Well, thank you. I Someday I'll get to come to Chicago and we can have a meal together. Yes, there you go. I would love That's, that. Wouldn't that be nice? We'll both be vaccinated. Yeah, someday. <laughs> That was uh, a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. He's so brilliant. He is. Uh, he is. And he's also very generous. Like, I love that he was talking about Wigleaf. That's awesome. Oh, you know, it's just, man, he's so right in that. Like, and, and we've discovered this. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we do this every week is it's like, you, we got to talk to each other, yes. you know, like you're, you're better at it than I am you're better at it than I am about like you have readers and you reach out and you talk about stuff. And I just like sit in my hovel worrying. (laughs) What are you talking about? What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) You have readers and you reach out. I don't do any. What are you talking about? You are killing me right now. You have readers. Oh my God, Lindsay. Maybe that's my other podcast co-host. Oh my God. But you do, don't you? Don't you have people who read your work? Oh, oh, yes, yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do. Okay, you win, you win, you win. I do have I do have a couple. My friend Willie. I mean my friend Willie is yeah, my, my first up, Willie? reader. Willie's the best. He's gonna come on at some point. Yeah. Um but yeah, that's true. I, I kind of I need that person. I need 
Yeah. I don't know how you kind of do it without that person, to be honest. Well, honestly, I don't clearly, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> we'll see if really has any openings for you. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. Ruman's totally right. Like that's one of the things that we're all kind of missing is like getting together and like just talking about the ridiculousness of being a writer and like cheersing each other and hearing each other read. And so Definitely. I'm glad that I'm glad that at least we're trying to do that here. Oh, we're trying. We're trying. <laughs> uh, did you get any work done this week? No. So I'm, I'm like very purposely not writing right now. Ooh, oh, that's just, right. Cause you're, I'm just, I'm just trying to read. And yes. so I'm, so I read Ruman's book this week. I read, I'm reading a manuscript that a friend sent me. That is, I know, you know, this feeling, but like when a friend sends you a manuscript and it's really working and it's really good, that's an amazing feeling. Um, yes. And that is definitely the case with the one I'm reading right now. And then I'm still reading, um, Senator Newman's book, uh, The Heavens, which is a stunner. My God, I need to get that. That's that's the thing I should read next. That is the thing you should read next. Get out of here, Don DeLillo. Bye, Don. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I love that. And I think, you know, like, I think it's important for people to hear that, like, a working writer saying, I am not writing right now. I am right doing this other thing, which is also very nourishing and necessary for my soul. Like Ruman was saying, Oh yeah. Getting the reading in. Oh my God. I know I we have a lot of new moms or moms with infants, mm-hmm. parents with infants listening to us who are writers and like hearing like, okay, you couldn't get to the writing today, but if you read for 10, 20 minutes, that's enough. You know? I love that idea. Yeah. I think it's true. I mean, honestly, when I was trying to figure out how uh, the POV was working and leave the world behind that it did feel like okay this is meaningful to my own work you know the next time i'm putting together something long in the third person i definitely am going to be conscious about this avenue or this way to do it um which was yeah it, it was it's it's thrilling when you can kind of parse out how a pov is working and how a narration is you know enacting its magic on you and I love that it came from someone telling him like, no, this is annoying. This is stupid. Right. And, and from like, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but my first impulse would have been, okay, we'll delete. Like this whole novel <laughs> is gone. Uh, Cause I don't know what else to do. I, you know, right. and, and just to like think and think and think and think about it until yes. a way in comes, comes to pass. Right. Um, and it really is one of the most unsettling parts of the novel and, and, definitely like makes you feel as helpless as the people in the novel it's why it works i think i mean honestly yeah for sure did you get any work done i got work done um i got a little work done i didn't get any of my friday work done i spent that whole time so speaking of food i like ramam was like my mom made spaghetti and chicken chicken Mm -hmm. whatever (laughs) and that's me i mean i don't make chicken because i'm vegetarian but my kids get like they get pretty much the spaghetti. same at the time. Spaghetti mm-hmm. is um like a I love like, spaghetti. Um that's like when we're going out on a limb, to be honest. Like they get like sandwiches, <sighs> they get, you know, like yogurt pouches. Guys, it's spaghetti night. <laughs> I like I just started making like um 
I, I am actually just realizing this. I did, I did start making chicken nuggets for my children. Congratulations. They have like veggies in them and stuff. So there's like hidden veggies in them and stuff, but to hear Ramon talk about it as like his mom, just being like, who cares? Just (laughs) it's like, Oh, like I've been thinking about it as like, well, I just don't want you to be disappointed with what I put in front of you. And I don't want to hear it because I'm tired, but maybe I need to start working in some like curries Sure, do a curry. (laughs) Some like (laughs) corn dogs. I don't know. I need to. I need to branch out. Anyway, we do a lot of fish sticks right now. A lot of lot of nugs. So that's exotic for me. Fish sticks Um, are great. Oh my god, love it. My point was, I spent more time at the grocery store on Friday than I normally would have. I would have rushed through, and this time I was trying to be very conscious and thoughtful. Right. So that I. So that I. I don't traumatize my children <laughs> with the bland blandiness they get oh anyway so God. i didn't get any work done on friday and then i never get any work done on the weekends because it's for some reason the weekends are more busy for me than right um yeah but i'm starting to feel like maybe i mentioned this before it start. it's i'm starting to feel like i've written like the narrative or i've written these these characters to the point where now i need to like go back and figure out what the shape of this book is going to be how much do you have i have um i have 95 single spaced pages which is holy christ that's like a almost lot. almost forty five thousand words so it's like eh, it's not like a full novel draft yet but it's enough to where i can go like really trying to figure out yeah i mean 45 here. becomes 60 before you know it once you have this thing arranged and darn tootin i mean geez that's amazing. How, how did you start this when? I, I started it. Um, so I started it, I think last late spring of okay. 2020. Right. Um, and my, my dog, I, I used to have two dogs. My dog Coco mm-hmm. started getting real, getting sick and it turned out right. she had Cushing's, which then turned into Addison's, which we didn't know, but she was getting up at like five in the morning to go to the bathroom. Right. And I would think to myself, well, I'm already up. So I'll, I'll just write because my, my family starts to wake up around like five 45 or six. So I had like mm-hmm. almost an hour. So I was getting my work done every day back then. Um, because my Koki was waking me up and we would go down together and, and I would write and snuggle with her. Mm-hmm. Um, well then she, we, we had to put her down in late summer. So now it's been on this, this other, this staggered schedule. And it's really funny how like, you're very connected to something, but then when you have to take a day off from it, it's, it's harder to remember. Yes. Um, so I want to really like, I want to get like really deep into it again. Um, and just like start like, you know, kicking stuff around. So the forgetting can be kind of amazing though. That's one of my it's favorite true. things, the forgetting. And then to go back is almost just as magical sometimes as when you're in it. Because... That's absolutely true. And I, I often know. think of like when Mary Robeson was writing, why did I ever, have you read that book? Are you fucking kidding me? Of course <laughs> I have. I'm, sometimes I say that and I'm shocked that people haven't read it. I, I should have known. I'm known. a super fan. I love Mary Robeson. Yeah. And she was writing it on index cards in her, in the front seat of her car. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, because yeah. that's how she could get it done. And I think about that and how meaningful and I'm not comparing myself to her, but just that that's how she got the work done. And it's like this classic that we all talk about. Um, and again, I'm not saying I'm going to make a classic, but it's like, it's still, it's still a thing. 
right? Like it's not like, I, I, I'm not being, I'm not able to touch it every single day, but I'm still building a thing that will be a thing. <laughs> totally. I'm a writer. There's anyway. a thing, uh, there's a thing in the, like the first 10 pages of the Mary Robinson book, one DOA went on the way. Oh, I love that book. Where the main character is calling the, like her assistant, the wrong name. And he corrects her and he's just like, it's like this long, she's having this conversation with him and she just, he stops her and he goes, my name is Paul or whatever. And for some reason, that's like, <laughs> it's the funniest thing in the world to me that like you have these two characters and he's just like, that's not my name. It's like, I, I always think of that for some reason with Mary Rose and just like, that is so, it's so direct and brilliant. Just, she's so oh deadpan. I heard of her through my friend, Jack Gems, which I'm yeah. sure many of you are familiar with and have read. And any book recommendation that Jack gives me, I like rush to get it because she has the best taste. Mm. She's one of those people that'll be like, oh, you're into this. Oh, you should read blah, blah, blah. And it's always perfect. She's so well-read. You know, it's funny. I thought of her as I was reading Leave the World Behind because of Jack's most recent book, which the I'm blanking on the name. The Grip of It. Yeah. My favorite thing about The Grip of It was the sh- like how effective the short chapters were. Yes. And, you know, leave the world behind. It's They're not quite as short, but it's a similar thing where you just, you honestly, you, I read the grip of it, I think in a night or two. It's just like you, you blow through that thing because my God, it's like a page and a half. I think the majority of those chapters and yeah, yeah. It's, that's a great book. Yeah. She's um, speaking of like, like, horror you know like she's mm, totally and and her stories feel that way too sometimes where you're just like what i read the, the stories i gotta read the stories oh yeah false bingo come on now mm-hmm. you'll love that yeah i gotta check that one out are you gonna read yeah i'm gonna read yay um because we had some awesome listeners our buttheads out there uh donating to megan's library we're gonna be sending some books out want to see if maybe we could get a few more support our public libraries in this country, especially with everything that's going on, Mm -hmm. which is a forever statement. Um, So yeah, I was just going to read a little bit of the title story from my collection called Cardinal. I am returning four rented tuxedos in San Diego the day after my older brother's wedding. It's late morning, Sunday, bright and green October. I take the 163 out of the city and down, dense with traffic, between verdant, tree-topped hills to the broader and browner eight. I get off the highway at the Mission Valley Mall with its massive strip shopping centers, one of which holds the men's warehouse where I'm returning the tuxes. In the strip's parking lot, a young security guard on a Segway is patrolling. He seems focused on the lot, the parked cars themselves, though I'm not sure why. I am met nearly at the door of the men's warehouse by a round woman in a blazer who quickly hangs the tuxes on a metal rack for inspection. She takes brisk inventory and says, since everything's in the bags and no, don't need a receipt, that I'm all set. I ask her what the security guard is doing so fixated on the cars. She tells me his job when the chargers are at home is to make sure people don't park in the mall lot and then take the trolley out to see the game, avoiding paying for parking at the stadium. She says the stadium, which she calls only Qualcomm, is a 10-minute trolley right away. Do you know him? I ask, meaning the security guard. Lewis? Sure. He comes in and drinks the coffee we set out for customers. Friendly guy. 
The coffee spread is impressive. A stainless steel dual thermal setup, regular and decaf, half and half, soy creamer, raw sugar, stevia extract, a few pink sweetened lows, thin red plastic stirs, and strangely, Anthora paper cups, the familiar New York Greek diner blue and white. I asked the woman which of the employees is from New York, trying to understand the presence of the cups, and she misunderstands me, says, no, I'm from here. On the curb, I put my hand over my eyes and watched Lewis going through the rows, leaning his segue in various directions. His job seems difficult to me. Not everyone who is wearing a jersey is going to the game, and not everyone who walks away from the stores is either. Lewis appears to be in his early 20s, Latino, over six feet tall, and soft-looking. When I approach Lewis, I ask how he determines when someone is headed to Qualcomm. He points towards the highway. On the other side of that Best Buy, the one that's blocking our view of the 8 there, that's a green line trolley stop. That's south. If I see an individual park in our lot here and head due south, they're getting towed. It's that simple. Amazing. I love to hear you read your work as always. And um, if anyone wants a copy of Cardinal or a copy of my book, please donate to Megan Phillips Public Library or any public library in your town and we will send it, send you a copy of one or both of our books. Thank you everyone for listening and truly from the bottom of our, of our farts. Thank you for listening. It's, it's been really fun to hear from all of you and to build this community with you. And um, we will talk to you guys next time. Thanks guys. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Higley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Because there's a pandemic out there, please wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. <laughs>